Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, and welcome everyone to the show. Great to be back with you all. And Rob, good to see you. Thank you very much. Good hey, to see you know what? Good. Hey, I, I, we should take a second, actually. We didn't prep for this in our pre-show that we just had. But in our first episode that we just had, uh, where it was just the introduction to me, we didn't give any updates on you. Can we take two minutes and do that? Uh, Even sure. though it's not relevant to the content at all? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I have uh, stepped down as a senior uh, pastor in Bakersfield, and uh, my wife and I uh, relocated to Mesa, Arizona. Uh, and I am now doing Determined Truth Ministries full-time. Been had an opportunity to, I'm mentoring 75 pastors right now in India uh, as a result of that uh, with Determined Truth, and it's been exciting. I'm just meeting with them on Zoom and encouraging them, training them, and equipping them, and speaking into their lives, and so I've been meeting with them by Zoom uh, for the last couple months. I'm uh, doing this podcast. I'm uh, writing a blog. I'm hoping to get a po- uh, YouTube channel together. I'm doing Bible studies on Zoom. If anyone's interested, send, send a note and let us know. I'm just kind of doing those things and just I'm trying to be a voice uh, to the church. And as we'll go into more detail as we move forward, the, the tagline for this podcast and for Determined Truth is challenging the church to be the church. And I just think that the church really needs prophetic voices right now. And so I, I just felt I could do that better, not being in a local church. And so um, I'm doing that. And that's not why I stepped out. I stepped out, I'm going to that some other time stepped away. But when we, when we did step away, my wife and I made the decision to move because our families, our, our kids are here. So we have two of our kids and then the third one moved here. Our fourth uh, son and his wife live in DC. So uh, it's been great to be in, in Arizona now because this is where our family is. So it's been great. Cool. Sorry for throwing that at you last no, minute, no, but I, I was just thinking that I'm like, we didn't give any updates for you. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's cool. Cool. So uh, part of what you've been doing, obviously, is you're, you have a, not a new voice, but just more time. You're reallocating time. You get, you get to speak into some issues that I know that you are passionate about and whatnot. So uh, you got to interview Mimi Haddad the other day. Right. And uh, I, I was so bummed out because I wasn't able to make the interview work with my yeah. schedule. When we, when we interview people, you know, if it's just you and I, we could schedule it out. We do a lot of them at nighttime early in the morning or something. Uh, but obviously when there's another party, especially someone living in the East coast or the Midwest, a lot of variables. So I couldn't make that one work. Um, but I, I was kind of in on the conversation in the sense that like I, I was in the zoom call and then I had to pop out to a few meetings. So I was catching most of it, but I couldn't do all of it. And, uh, that was just like, just hearing that conversation, uh, from a spectator's view, that was just an amazing conversation. Uh, did you have any just overall thoughts on, you know, what maybe you expected going into it or, uh, you know, just uh, your expectations or, or what did you feel like just coming out of that thing? Yeah, I felt like, you know, the background that you and I both uh, seem to come from is uh, the idea that if you start talking about women and equality in the church or women and justice in the church, for example, you, you're just you're just going down the liberal path. Right. I mean, in the generation I grew up in, of course, the women's liberation. So it's just it's just that. And you're undermining the scriptures because the Bible is really clear. And one of the things that I want to encourage the readers is the listeners is that, listen, when we have issues that you don't agree with us on, just listen. That's fine. We're not asking that you have to agree. But when you start to hear people from the other side. Uh, it starts to open up your mind a little bit more and it starts to open up your thinking a little bit more, whether it reinforces what you already believe a little bit more, but at least you understand the other side better. And, and one of the benefits of understanding the other side better is that you get to love the other side better because now, okay, I, oh, at least I understand them and you respect them better. 
And so Mimi just has this powerful voice because of what she does. She's a leader of uh, Christians for Biblical Equality. She's in, she's in the firing lines uh, on these issues. So it's just awesome to kind of hear her stories and, and hear uh, her context. And so between you and me, well, I say between you and me, but got, I'm in lessons, right? Yeah. yeah. So I guess it's no longer between you and me. But for me, what I've learned in the last 18 months or more that I've been really researching this to, to write, I, initially I was going to write a book and I just ended up becoming on blogs, is how ignorant I was. Uh, when it came to issues of, of women and injustice and things like that. And, um, and so hearing Mimi and, and the stories of, okay, hey, you know what? Uh, and for those of you listeners, it's a lot worse than you realize. You know, she, she threw out the stat of uh, Artean Sen, I think the guy's name was, who did the research in the 90s that said, mm-hmm. you know, based on data, um, the, the, the birth rate of, of, of uh, girls to boys is just slightly higher for girls, right? Mm-hmm. There's just, there's slightly more girls that are born than, than, than boys. Um, and as a result of that, the population of the world should have slightly more women than, should, than men. Yet uh, there's actually a, a hundred million less women in the world than, than and like something's going on. And he did all this incredibly uh, deep research. So it wasn't just like, and, and Mimi's like, well, yeah, guess what, Rob? Now it's like 200 million. There's mm-hmm. 200 million women missing. Well, why are they missing? Well, because girls are aborted more at a higher rate than boys. And Mimi didn't bring this out, but um, mm-hmm. girls are aborted at a higher rate than boys. Girls are left to die at a, a higher rate than boys because they don't bring, you know, girls cost families money, right? I have to pay you a dowry to take my daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you look at countries around the world and, 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 you're, and you find out, well, they, they can't afford to educate everybody, all of their kids. So they educate the boys. Well, what that means you know, and for someone like myself thinking, well, okay, I, that kind of makes sense. But then you start realizing, okay, the implications of this, not having an education means you're stuck because you're dependent upon somebody else because you can't get good paying jobs. You can't get uh, advanced in society and culture. And, I, and so it just perpetuates this um, culture of dependence. And so you start realizing, wow, this is a lot worse than I ever expected. I think people like myself thought, oh, okay, yeah, well, women just don't get the same pay as men in jobs and they get looked over when it comes to promotions and things like that. And like, well, that's like nothing compared to what really is happening. And so uh, it was neat to hear some of those stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, we, you had mentioned like some of the reactionary responses we have, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're on one side of the equation or the other and, and you hear, you know, you hear someone talk on a subject and, and we really go tribal mode. And if, right. if, if, if it's not coming from my perspective, you immediately shut it down. You, yeah. you argue it down you dismiss it. You name call, uh, you do all those sorts of things. And I think you're right, especially as the Christian, uh, I, I think loving God with all your mind, means and and loving your neighbor as yourself right. right which is literally part of matthew 22 it means you're actually providing charity and, and you're listening to people earnestly uh if we take things seriously like not bearing false witness right. then that means we're actually listening to what people are saying and not creating straw man arguments or not assuming the worst um and and it, like even before we're getting into this conversation it's like this is what a Christian conversation should be rooted in, right? Yeah. And, and Christians should be known for that. And we all have those people in life, how we value talking to them because we know they're always going to hear us out, whether it was that 
favorite teacher or mm-hmm. that pastor or that aunt or the grandma or whoever. Right. Uh, and, there, and we all know that there's something special about that person because I could always go to them, right? Yeah. It's like, why isn't the church known for that? And, and why is it that the church is no better and, and in some instances worse than the rest of the world when it comes to, to issues of this? Um, it, it, you know, I, I had a, a professor, uh, a female professor in seminary who uh, just to, to, to bring in that aspect, yes, you could le- learn from women, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's... Uh, she would always say, if we have truth, we could put truth in the marketplace of ideas, because if it's true, it's going to come back true. You don't have to be scared of other ideas. Yeah. And I would add one thing to that. that's really significant. If Jesus is the truth, right? John 14, six, then all truth is ultimately going to point back to him. Mm-hmm. So when we're narrow-minded and closed-minded and dogmatic and not listening, we might be robbing ourselves of an opportunity to actually get to know Christ better because I'm believing something that might not be completely true or, or believing something about, about somebody else that's actually not completely true, whether it's a straw man about them. So the way I've always said it is if the Christian should be the most open-minded of all people um, because all truth is ultimately going to lead us to Jesus. And, and the reason why we came up with the name Determined Truth years ago was because that really is the goal. The goal is to determine what the truth is. Now, what I've always noticed is that there's two things about that, right? One is we're afraid to determine the truth. And and I know my evangelical fundamentalist kind of background that we were afraid of the truth Mm -hmm. and it was fear. Uh, The the reason why we're so dogmatic on creation issues, that are so dogmatic on women issues or so dogmatic on justice issues is because we were afraid of the liberal incursion that it might, that it might result, right? Or the communists that might come in, a political view. We we were, it was fear-based. And yet if, Jesus is the truth. We should have, there's, there's, there's no fear in love. It's perfect love does have fear. And, and there's a second thing that's important there too. And that is that we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, as, as you're, as you're um, getting, getting to that point. When I hear the other person and understand what they're saying, even when I don't agree with them, it just gives me a greater level of respect for them. Because, oh, okay, you guys aren't as stupid as I thought you were, right? Because we have these ideas of what people think, but they're not really grounded in reality. And so all of a sudden now I have a better respect for the other side and it just helps us love the other even more. So, um, so even yeah. right there though, as you're, as you're saying that, um, cause I could even, you know, resonate, you know, with a, like a fundamentalist background, it's more important to teach what to think than how to think. Mm-hmm. And so conclusions are all that matter. Right. right. And, um, so you could even have two, you know, person a and person B, they could hold to the same conviction, right on, on an issue. But if person A is only coming to that conviction because of fear mm-hmm. and narrow-mindedness and not, ex, not not even entertaining any thought process of, of how this might be, and person B comes to the same conclusion, but it's in a sense of, hey, they've, they've worked through this or are working through it out. They understand other points of view. It's not merely that they've arrived at the right conclusion. Part of this is the process that they go through in getting there, because that ultimately determines how you view others. It's not viewing us against them. Everyone else isn't the enemy. I have truth. You're an idiot. Uh, it, you know, it, it usually person B is not going to have that kind of mindset and posture towards the rest of the world. And then the point that you were getting at earlier as well is, imagine what this does for our Christian witness. When when we hold when we have grace because we listen well and we 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 value it we value people and what they're thinking and what they're saying and we acknowledge it okay I'm not sure I agree with that but that's a good point um, 
that does tremendous things for our, for our Christian witness. And on the other hand, when we are dogmatic and we are narrow-minded and we are stereotypical and uh, stereotype and, and whatever, it's just, it just does tremendous harm to our Christian witness. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of things at stake here beyond just my convictions. The other thing I would mention about that would be, you know, we have this theological conviction, right? That, that we're human and fallible. And what that means is the fact that I don't know everything mm-hmm. and, and, and becoming content with the fact that I don't know everything, I think actually is, a, is, an, is an important step of, in the process of discipleship and Christian maturation. Um, I don't know everything and I'm okay with the fact that God does and I don't, and that I don't understand some of the things he even says. Okay, I'm fine with that. Uh, and maybe this is true. Maybe that's true. I'm not, I'm not sure, but, but I'm okay with that. Let's move forward now. And how, how can we move forward on this? Yeah. And as a teacher, that's, that, that's probably the phrase I've used more in the last year than I ever have as a teacher, which is you are not omniscient and you are not infallible. <laughs> and yeah. literally like the fact that I have to remind our people about that, <laughs> it's like, like we forget about that. We kind of think we are, we live in an information age. Yeah. Um, and just because we have unlimited information doesn't mean we have any wisdom. They're not the same things. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we have unlimited uh, information. Therefore we get puffed up. Uh, we become right. arrogant and, uh, you know, become hubristic people. And, um, it, it's just not a fun, fun. That's not what we want to be known for. We're not a fun group of people to be around oftentimes the church. Right. Yeah. Because we are so narrow-minded and dogmatic and arrogant and pretentious and everything else as well. So going back to the conversation with Mimi now, this is a serious issue. So I I wrote, uh, and Mimi referred to my blogs, that this might be the greatest issue of justice in the world. I mean, you think of all the issues of just all the justice issues that are out there in this world, um, poverty and uh, war and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the reality is that justice and injustice towards women affects over half the population that tells us, hey, this is a serious issue. And it's way beyond just discrimination and sexual discrimination and, and not getting fair pay and things like that. No, this is actually demeaning and, and, and denouncing and, and criminal acts towards, towards girls that are, that are um, uh, sex trafficked at higher rates than boys and, 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 and murdered, if, depending on your views of abortion or, or, or even being left to die because, mm-hmm. because of girls. These are serious issues. And then you start adding in uh, the abuse issues that come about because of male dominance and male patriarchy and things like that. So, and, and I'm not saying that you have to agree, you know, I've, I've obviously, as you know, um, I've kind of come full, full scale. I'm like, I think I'm an egalitarian where I, I, I think, and I, and I argued in my blogs that women are biblically equal to men in the new Testament era. And we can discuss that as well. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't agree with that, uh, we need to stop and go, okay, Hey, you know, we still got a problem here and, and we need to, and we need to address this and it's time for the church to step up. Yeah. And that's where, you know, that would be the next point of our conversation is uh, wherever you're at on the egalitarian complementarian scale. Right. And define those terms for us. So, so, uh, you know, low shelf egalitarian would, would uh, theologically speaking, would say that uh, an egalitarian would say, we believe that the new Testament teaches that men and women are equal in the sense of being able to hold uh, the same types of responsibilities within the church. Sure. Whereas a complementarian would say, we believe that men and women are equal in being made in the image of God, but God has given them complementary roles uh, in, in one of that, what a distinction of that would be, and only men would be able to lead as pastors and elders. And, 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 and there's probably applies, degrees within there. Yeah, I'm so, sorry, about, sorry about that. But it also applies in the family. So the men are the head of the household as well. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, male patriarchy is the idea of complementarianism. So, yeah. yeah, so, well, so let's, I mean, even while we're there, uh, one, let's maybe define this out, flush it out a little bit more, you know, in terms of how this would affect our churches. So I, you know, my own little way of describing this when I have conversations is I put it on a scale and I kind of divide it up into, and everything, there's always a spectrum to everything in life, right? But I, I, I put it as usually in this uh, topic, or you're looking around like you have something going on right now. Is your dog like my dog is having a nightmare, and so it's whining and it's whimpering. I'm trying to wake her up. So sorry about that. That's hilarious. No, it, I, I, we're keeping this in the show. By the way, we're not. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah. she's having a nightmare over there, and so she's whimpering. So <laughs> I couldn't hear it. So that's okay. maybe I, 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 I know. <laughs> Go ahead. Anyway, <laughs> that's hilarious. So I, it's hilarious. Your dog's having a nightmare. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Poor thing. So I usually teach this in, in that even within, you know, it's not a binary thing that there's just egalitarian and there's just complementarians. Usually there's a spectrum of anything mm, in life right, sure. for something like this. I encounter something to the effect of like a hard soft. Mm-hmm. So on, on the, on the complementarian side of things, usually you see something like a hard complementarian and a soft complementarian, a, a hard complementarian is going to be something that is extremely rigid with male headship uh, rules and, and function. So it, it's going to be as far as women aren't having any involvement in your church service other than coming and consuming, right? Uh, maybe they're allowed to teach the little kids or hold babies, I've, I've seen things even recently with uh, evangelical churches that are extremely complementarian that say they don't even hire female secretaries anymore because there wow. might be an instance in which uh, uh, the secretary would have to give direction to a man and they can't hold a headship over there. Uh, and so I, I read that on a blog and I, I'm not even going to mention the church it was associated with because I don't know if it's true and I don't want to propagate sure. um you know, misinformation, but I, I imagine that's true somewhere. So that's, that's, that's probably a legitimate, uh, you know, uh, explanation of that. So that would be like a hard complementarian role where you might have then a soft complementarian role, something that says, okay, we, we acknowledge that, uh, that there are gender roles within a church. Uh, however, we are still going to have women leading in some regard. Uh, and, and there might be various views within there. And so all this stuff is a spectrum, right? right? From there on the egalitarian side, you seem to see the same thing as well, where you see a hard egalitarian that says, no, men and women are literally equal in any position that can be had. And, and so you you know, the, the gender does not at all determine who serves in what role. Whereas I've seen other churches where they will elevate uh, a female to the office of pastor and they will actually give them that title and they might even have authority, you know, oversee men in some regard, but they'll never serve in a senior pastor type of role. Um, and so, you know, in, in a simple spectrum, I've seen that. I don't, do you, mm-hmm. does that sound accurate to you or is there anything you would want to put yeah. on? Yeah. Well, and, and I'd add to that, you know, um, that egalitarian churches, are sometimes are often egalitarian in their theological convictions, but not in their practice. Mm. So they say, "Oh yeah, women are equal with men in role and authority in the church, no problem at all." Um, but then you look, and, and it's only men up on the stage. Uh, it's only men on the on the elder board, mm-hmm. um, or you know. And there's well, there's a token woman here and there. And I get the fact that that, that there are, there are a number of mitigating factors that that have an influence on that, but it, but it's often very very true. So I guess the the, the the true egalitarian would say you cannot have, they would say, Vinny, I reject your categories of soft and hard. You either all are egalitarian or you are not. Like they, they would probably, I'm assuming I would make that argument if I was, uh, if I was arguing for a consistent egalitarian, then you couldn't, 
you couldn't have a soft egalitarian. Well, you shouldn't. How's that? Right. Okay. Uh, and, and, well, and again, there are mitigating factors, right? And, there are, and, and, and let's add this also to the, to the conversation, whether we get into the biblical text in, in question or not tonight, we'll see how it goes. Um, but uh, there are also cultural factors going on. So there might be, for example, you know, pastors in India that mm-hmm. are probably not going to elevate women uh, to roles of authority uh, equal with men uh, in, or positions of authority equal with men in the church because they're lacking the training, which I think is what Paul forbids in 1 Timothy 2. And, they're, and, and culturally, uh, it, it could be detrimental to the woman herself as well as to the church. And so they need to they need to bring the culture along. Now, I think the church should pave the way for culture. We shouldn't just be going, hey, you know what? Culture just doesn't let you do anything. Sorry, you just got to take a back seat here. I think Paul was arguing in, in the scriptures and, and constantly contending with this, this tension. And the tension is, look, we need to advance the cause of women, the oppression of women and overcoming that. But at the same time, if we go too far with that, we're going to lose all of our voice. Mm-hmm. So how do we balance having a voice at the same time and affirming women um, also? So I, I think that there are, there are factors that, that can be at play there and culture is one of them. Okay. So, yeah. and, and I think that we'll probably even get into that more if, you know, once we just maybe talk about a text or two, because, uh, yeah. because that, that goes as part of the interpretive grid that we read the right. text in. Right. Um, so l- let's talk about one word that comes up in this conversation, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, egalitarian, complementarian and that sort of thing. And it, it's the, it's the L word, right. Liberal. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the word that tends to get thrown around yeah. a lot. Uh, you know, I've already, uh, said that I, I come from, a, you know, I, I serve on staff at a reformed Baptist church. So that's definitely going to be on the conservative side. The church I serve in is complementarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you oftentimes hear, uh, terms used, where and, and I'm not like <laughs> for, for my own people listening, I'm not uh, uh, being passive aggressive and throwing anyone on my staff under the bus because I, I actually have not come across this with my people, but within my circle, within my context, right? Mm-hmm. You'll oftentimes say, okay, this person affirms women pastors, therefore they're liberal, right? Uh, and and it's like it's just this term that means this. How would we define theological liberal? Is this the same thing as like political liberal? Like how should we use this term liberal versus conservative? (laughs) Well, it's funny. Uh, In the original notes that I sent, I sent to Mimi, what we, when we have a guest on, usually what we do is we, um, you know, in a few weeks, we're going to be interviewing uh, Scott McKnight and and, uh, Laura Berenger and and their book. And so we read their book and then we come up with a series of, of talking points based on what they said in their book. And so I came up with a set of questions and, and things for me to help guide the conversation. So she would be prepared to know that, Hey, we're going to, we might talk about this, this, or this. And then one of the points I said, you know, I use the word liberal. I said, that, you know, uh, the idea that you can be egalitarian and not be a liberal. And so she comes back, she goes, define liberal for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I almost chuckled because it was in an email. So I, I, but if it was in a conversation, I would have just been laughing. I'm like, well, actually that's the question I would like to ask the person who uses the term. <laughs> Yeah, right. right. Um, oh, that's just liberal. It's like, what? I think it's just bantered about, it's a weapon, mm-hmm. right? And it's a weapon to silence someone. And, and, and what does it mean? So I'm not sure that we have this full scale definition of, of what it means. When we talk about theological liberalism, uh, especially when it's used by, by people that are more conservative, whatever, I think the basic thing that they're thinking of is that there's no definitive foundation for discerning what the scriptures do say and what they don't say, you know, that, that, that 
we don't have this definitive foundation, whether it's a theological um, confession, like if you're a Presbyterian, maybe the Westminster mm-hmm. Confession, um, or Reformed Baptist might even use Westminster Confession. We, um, we usually use something like London Baptist, which is just a yeah, you know, yeah. derivative. Yeah, of that. so you have yeah. a confessional standard um, mm-hmm. that helps us with, with saying, hey, the scriptures have this have these parameters. So the liberal doesn't have those parameters. And as, this is a, this is kind of the accusation, and and the because the liberal doesn't have those parameters, they can say the text says anything they almost wanted to say. Now that's not true. That's not that's not what they really are believing there uh, necessarily. But that's kind of the idea behind uh, the, the word liberal and how it's thrown out. How it's thrown out. Yeah, yeah. I know that I had a struggle with this term specifically once I started going to seminary because uh, I was going to Fuller. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my conservative friends were that's saying, liberal. you got to watch out. They're liberal. Yeah, that's right. And I was warned not to go to some, not to go to Fuller, by the way, by one of my conservative, I won't say any names, influencers. So don't go. I'm it's, like, it's, why not? It's too liberal. I'm like, it's oh. too liberal. And so it, it was interesting because once I actually got to Fuller and then started engaging with different scholars across the theological spectrum, you realize that liberal actually, it, it, it almost starts with, I don't know, it's hard to encompass it as this is what it is, yeah. but there's a general sense of, it starts with, okay, how do you view the scriptures and how God has worked? Right. Uh, you know, and, and so when you look at actual liberal seminaries, like Harvard or, you know, or, or, or Yale or Yale, Princeton, yeah, yeah. where it's like, you, you actually have like eight, some atheist professors teaching in there. And some of them are like fine scholars, right? But you have evangelicals there too. By you, the you have both. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, 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 you know, if there's a sense where I could have, I could go to a seminary where there's an atheist teaching me and no, there's no God who's involved in this as a great literature. Okay. Well, if that might be the extreme of what mm-hmm. liberal means, how could I call like, something like fuller liberal like what do i do with the liberals then (laughs) like if this is liberal now like how far do we have to push that spectrum what do they become i think we just got to get away and i think i wrote this in a blog a few weeks ago we just got to get away from the name calling Mm -hmm. and the labeling because the labels are meant to 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 silence people and that's just not how we're supposed to engage in conversations as christians Uh, you know let your conversation be seasoned with salt paul says in, in colossians 4 you know, it, with grace and 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 seasoning and, and salt in that context means it, it makes it taste better, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not like other uses of the word salt, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that makes it taste better. Yeah, How, your conversation should be that way. And so, if that's the case, then labels don't really have any any role in Christian discourse. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that would be our first encouragement. Stop the name calling. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and these things don't mean anything now, any days. Uh, we hear, you know, popularly, everything is if if you don't, if you're not where I'm at, you're a Marxist, right? You're, yeah. you're a, we just use these terms and they don't mean anything at any point. It, it, right. It's the equivalent of name calling and, it, and it's not helpful at all in anything. Um, and I would even encourage, you know, people on the complementarian side, if you're listening, we oftentimes say, oh, you know, the, the Presbyterian church is, a, is uh uh, ordaining women, they're liberal. Well, how come we don't ever uh, accuse the uh, Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God denomination of being liberal? They ordain women. Well, and the Southern Baptist Convention ordained women until the 1990s. Yeah, right? yeah. So, and, yeah. and that's that's the bastion of conservatism. Uh, and, and I'm officially actually ordained by an evangelical Presbyterian uh, denomination called ECO. Um, and we ordain women. And so I'm evangelical. Um, and you know, I'm, con- I'm, I consider myself very conservative in terms of some of my convictions in, in many ways. I certainly came from that background. So yeah, so just be careful. And, and here's the other thing that happens when, when we use labels like this and we have these conversations. I was at a church one time 
uh, and uh, as a as a guest uh, guest preacher, and they were going through through some things, and they were talking about uh, the, their their announcements uh, in the bulletin uh, had 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 political things in 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 the bulletin, basically. Hey, uh, the praises are this, and it was some political thing. Hmm. Right? Well, the problem with that is 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 that if you're on the other side of the political aisle and yep. you don't consider that a praise, then you just felt like, okay, I'm not welcome here. Mm-hmm. They were, they were clapping and cheering because something happened that only some people on certain sides of the political aisle would actually uh, w- would clap for. I mean, it has no place in the church. Yeah. And so what we're telling people is you're not welcome here. And it's like, wait a minute, this is, this is, that's just not the way we're supposed to do it. So we have to realize what our conversation is actually saying. And that is, Oh, well, everyone here agrees with me. That's why everyone agrees with you because the other people aren't welcome here uh-huh. or they don't feel welcome. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's serious issues. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to kind of wrap up just that section, we would say, mm-hmm. regardless of where you're at on the spectrum of, of how you view roles right. of, of women in church and in, in family and those sorts of things, wherever you're land at, and, and I'll even speak to my complementarian, you know, brothers mm-hmm. and sisters on my end, the way we view women has to matter. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I would even make the case like, if you are a complementarian, because that's your your conviction, that's what you're led to, that's what you sincerely believe that this is what uh, the text is is teaching. In a, in a sense, how extra sensitive are you being to the issue then? Uh, because right off the bat, you could be more prone to uh, areas of injustice and abuse and minimalization of women. And, right. and so are we extra careful on those sorts of things? And, and I would just right. really encourage us there. Right. Yeah. And we're going to have a conversation next week with uh, Laura Berenger and Scott uh, McKnight talking about um, churches and what happens when churches go bad and, and some of the corruption and injustice in churches. And one of the things that happens in those situations is the women's voices are silenced. Mm-hmm. And that's really dangerous and really uh, um, uh, problematic. So well, we got to be careful about these things. The implications are, are pretty significant. Yeah. So I know that you've been blogging a lot on uh, 1 Corinthians 11, which is one of Paul's texts that has to deal with women uh, in, in the church and whatnot. I mean, are, are there some things if, if you were to maybe summarize, I, mean, how, I don't know how many blog posts you went through. 15 posts total on the issue okay. of women and just, I think it's 15 total. And then a number of those were on 1 Corinthians 11, right? I think maybe four or five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Were, yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, you almost have this little mini commentary <laughs> yeah. rolling through there, but if, if you were to maybe summarize those posts and maybe we could even uh, link to uh, the Pathios page in the, okay. um, in the show notes. Right. So yeah. people could, could have a direct link to, to those episodes. Right. Yeah. Go to uh, robertdetermintruth.com if you're just listening right now, and then we'll put it in the show notes uh, um, uh, where they're at. So summarize your thoughts on that. Yeah. L- let me comment first on, on kind of uh, prefacing it by saying, all right. So, Theological conservatives who don't believe women should have equality with men in the home or in the church have certain texts that they go to, most notably 1 Timothy 2, where women can't be pastors and, and, and have authority, uh, and then 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul's, uh, where it, the text says you know, that, that uh, male is, man is the head of woman, and Christ is the head of man, and God's the head of Christ. All right, there you go. No question about it. Headship, uh, male headship is, is, is firmly stated. All right. let, let me begin by noting that we have these couple key texts that are, that are argued uh, against women in the church, yet the entirety of the New Testament witness is women having roles of prominence and importance that, 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 that just uh, all over the place. So you read the Gospels, and the women are always the ones who get it. They're always the ones who understand. They're always the ones who have faith. They're the first witnesses of the resurrection. I mean, that is a massive thing. But by the way, on that point, all the Gospels are, are emphatic. The first witnesses to the mm-hmm. resurrection were women. 
Yet in Paul's creed in 1 Corinthians 15, he doesn't mention women at all. Mm-hmm. He, he appeared to, to, to Peter and then and, and then to the 12. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He leaves women out of it because by the time you get to the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, we, we've, we've, we've taken women. So it's like, wait. so, but when you look at this, at this, and most notably, of course, is, is um, Acts 2, the prophecy of Joel that Peter Joel, quotes yeah. and says, in the last days, I'll pour my spirit upon all yeah. humanity, all mankind. Your man your and, man and, when, yeah, and your daughters shall prophesy. Shall yeah. prophesy. yeah. You see, hey, that's the foundational text of the church, right? Right there beginning. We, we shouldn't be surprised that when we read through the book of Acts, there's, there's Priscilla, who's a significant leader and probably a teacher in the church, that uh, uh, Philip's four daughters are our, um, prophetesses. And you just go on and on and on, whether it's it Phoebe in the book of Acts, it's mm-hmm. in the book of Romans, it certainly appears to be at least a deaconess uh, mm-hmm. of some nature, and we can go on and on and on. So the prominence of women in the biblical text, the, the multitude of verses overrides this one verse that you may have here or may have there, and it's, it's, it, uh, I guess overrides is too strong a term. It should influence our reading of these texts, and so that's kind of kind of the way I would I would, I would preface it. All right. So, second thing I would say is this: is when I so I grew up uh, complementarian. I grew up uh, male headship. That's just the way it is. Women women shouldn't be preaching and having authority in the church. That's just the way it is. The next thing I would say to that is my experiences. Uh, began to say, you know, I think I need to rethink this a little bit or, or relook at this. So for me, scripture is obviously the greatest authority. So I, I know I have 1 Timothy 2 that says women can't be pastors and authorities in the church. I know 1 Corinthians 11 says men are the head of, are, are the head of women. So I, I've got that. But like you, I had experiences where I had uh, women in my classroom for my, in my PhD program. I'm thinking, she's brilliant. I mean, she's better than us. And then I'm meeting female scholars uh, who are writing brilliant stuff. And I, and I was processing at one point in time, uh, and I'm still complimentary I'm through and through at, the, at this point in time. And I was processing thinking, you know, I can take from this commentary or from this article or from this book that this woman wrote, and I can take that and make notes and, and comments and write a sermon that I can preach, but she can't. Mm-hmm. That didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, so that immediately started becoming problematic uh, for me. And then I started having uh, women uh, leaders that I became involved with, Roberta Hestinus, that some of you might be uh, familiar with. And she was mentoring me at one point uh, as the executive um, director of, uh, of the seminary that we're starting, the, the president of our seminary. And I'm thinking the fact that she clearly knows more than I do, she's more experienced than I, than I am, and yet she can't preach, but I can, it doesn't make any sense. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, so women can do a Bible study on a Wednesday, but they can't take that same lesson and preach it on a Sunday. So that was beginning to force me to go, okay, what does the text say? What, what's going on? So when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11, um, and uh, there's a, a brilliant article out by Lucy Pepiat, P-E-P-P-I-A-T-T, um, that really, I'm like, okay, this makes perfect sense. And I took what she said, and I think I expanded upon it, so my, my blog articles, uh, or kind of expanding on, on her argument. And what she noted was, she goes, look, if 1 Corinthians 11, if uh, verses two through 16, that's kind of the, 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 the text in question here. If this whole passage is Paul's, then he contradicts himself in the midst of the same passage. Because at the end of the text, um, and I need to get my reading glasses out so I can look at it a little bit more carefully. But at the end of the passage, Paul basically says, uh, look, uh, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, in the Lord, however, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. The woman originates from man, so also man has his uh, birth to the woman, and all things originate from God. 
judge for yourselves. And so he seems to say, look, there's, there's this equality. We both originate from one another. You can't have boys without having a woman around. Don't tell me that Adam was made first and that Eve therefore subordinate because you're not going to get any, you're not going to get any um, Cain and Abel or anybody else unless you have Eve. What he says earlier in the text says, no, women are subordinate. Well, at the end of the text, he seems to say that they're not subordinate. So we have this internal contradiction. And so what Lucy pointed out, which goes, I think Paul's quoting the, the, the Corinthians here. Now, we know Paul quotes the Corinthians on, on a number of occasions, and, and then he, uh, he does this in the book of Galatians as, as well. He, he's quoting, and we know he's reading a letter. So 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 1, he begins by saying, now concerning the matters that you wrote about. Mm-hmm. So from chapter 7, verse 1, and, and it mentions it in, in 8, verse 1, and it mentions it in 12, verse 1, now concerning, now concerning. So Paul's addressing a letter that they wrote to him. He's got their writing in front of them. And it appears that Paul's quoting them and then responding to them. And so, so for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is, man, this is verse 3. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. It seems as though that this is what they were saying. They're making this argument. Uh, Paul goes on to say, verse 14, does it not even the nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. Her hair is given to her for a covering. So in verse five, the woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head. But then he says, wait, her long hairs are covering. So it seems that, that what's happening, and, and I argue this in much more detail and probably more better than, probably better than I'm doing right now, that Paul is quoting the Corinthians and then rebutting them. And that's why there's not a contradiction in the earlier part and the later part, because the earlier part's their words. The irony then is the male headship part is their claims. And what I then did was I, I then said, okay, this makes perfect sense from what I know as a New Testament scholar of the cultural conditions of the day. So in that culture, it was a male headship, patriarchal culture. And so when Paul says, look, women are praying and prophesying in church. So that's, that's clear. Women can pray and prophesy in church. We're not going to stop that. It looks like the Corinthian men were saying, well, okay, don't you realize that that's causing us problems in our society? Because you're letting these women have this role that, that society is going to look upon us and, and look down upon us. So what we want to do is we want to say, women, at least cover your heads as a sign of submission to us. So that way, when society sees us, They'll go, well, at least they know that the men's in charge and the women are subordinate. And so, and Paul's like, you can't do that because that's not biblical. You're making them second-class people and that's not the gospel. And so he rebuts against this. And so this is the men saying, well, yeah, we're also, we're just not comfortable with giving up our positions of power and authority. And so what we want to do is we want to let the women know, hey, listen, you are, you're a subject to us. Now, that that's what's happening in Corinth seems to be supported by the fact that the very next passage, starting in verse 17, it's the famous communion passage. Mm-hmm. Paul then begins to describe, hey, look, you rich men are shaming the poor among you because while they're out working during the day and, and making a living, you guys are getting together and having your communion meal before they even come, before they even show up. And we su- suspect that this communion in this context was making like a lunchtime, a noontime meal where the laborers would take their uh, siesta that time, that the afternoon uh, time where you stop working in the middle of the day. And then, and so they show up at, at noon, let's say. Well, the, the, the powerful and rich who don't, who don't labor are already meeting and, and, they're, and they're drunk and full. 
and, and Paul's answer is, and you're shaming those who have nothing. So it's, it's clear that the context of this chapter, and, and it goes on, and I discuss this more detail in my blog, in chapter 12 as well, when it comes to spiritual gifts, my reading, I think, is absolutely fully supported by, by, by chapter 12, which I won't go into now, that this was the problem. The problem was men and rich men in the church who didn't want to give up their positions of power and authority and we're therefore letting the poor people know, hey, you guys are subject to us because we're, we're eating, we're done. Good luck, you know, have whatever you have left. And also telling the women, hey, you got to have to have a head covering on to show that you are subordinate to us. And Paul's like, that is not the case. Doesn't, script, doesn't the very nature of things tell you that if a woman has long hair, that's her head covering. God gave her a head covering and it's not to be subordinate to you. And, and woman's not independent of man. Man's not independent of woman. We're all equal. And then in chapter 12, he goes on to say what? that we are all given these gifts within the context of the body that were to be used for edification of one another. And what does he say? Prophecy is like number two gift behind apostleship. And the whole conversation's been whether women should pray and prophesy with their head covered. And Paul's answer is, she's the second most prominent gift of all gifts. Women have it. So I think when you read the whole context of everything that's going on, it's Paul's rebuttal of them, which then means that the, the, the people who are using the strong complementarians, I won't you know, throw all complementarians under the bus here, the strong complementarians who use this to really thump female subordination, they're actually taking the side of Paul's opponents to which he was arguing against. And, and hearing this as someone who is from the complementarian sure, tradition, yeah, and, yeah. and usually when you are hearing First uh, Corinthians 11, it's, it's going to contain some flavor of that. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul, you know, this is a really interesting uh, sequence that he does. Obviously, he didn't write with chapter divisions right. <laughs> in mind. Those came later, and they, they're very helpful because we could we know where to turn. But, um, you know, as it gets into like the famous chapter 13, which is the love chapter, which is it's love in the context of spiritual gifts. Uh, it then gets into 14, which then continues talking about spiritual gifts like prophecy and tongues. And then in the middle of chapter 14, you seem to have this, this throwback to chapter 11. Right. Um, and and it, once again, there in, uh, oh gosh, where's it at? It, it talks about 30, uh, 34. 34 I think yeah. Yeah. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be kept silent in the churches. So then, you know, from the complementarian side, the argument that you would get exegetically is saying, hey, this is this is not Paul addressing a situational problem. This is him speaking uh, not prescriptively uh, or not descriptively, but prescriptively. This is this, th this is an ethic that he is saying applies to all churches for all times. So like, how would you connect that to your earlier exegesis? Yeah, and I, and I do respond to this in the, my blog post as well. So people on the, on the site, one of the latter posts uh, refer to this. And the answer is, this is again, Paul quoting them. This can't be the words of Paul for the simple reason of this. He's already affirmed women praying and prophesying in the church. The context of chapter 11 was whether they should have their heads covered or not. And they're saying, yes, she has to. So as a sign of subordination under men, and Paul's like, no, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? So to say that women have to be silent, it's like, what are you talking about? We've already affirmed that they can pray and prophesy. So this seems to be something that they were trying to say and that Paul then is rebutting. Uh, and that uh, makes the most sense of the text. Uh, otherwise, you, you have complementarians who go, well, well, Paul doesn't mean that she has to be completely silent. Uh, it only means silence. And, and it's like, no, there's no need to skate around this. This isn't the words of Paul. This is the words that Paul's quoting of them and then, res and, and then responding to them. Yeah. So along with that, we also have, and you've already mentioned First Timothy two, and I, and I would put First Timothy three in there. Yeah. I uh, and I, I would want to know if, if you would just think as is First Timothy three just maybe then 
applying first Timothy two, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, but how would you understand first Timothy two then in those passages? Yeah. And so uh, now I, I have an older blog on my website on the Pathos there that you can look up on. If you just do a, a search, if you go to, um, I think it's archives tab um, and then a, a drop down windows, like you can select the um, topic. And if you select women, it'll bring up all the articles I've written on women uh, there and all the posts there. And I address, because this was the, this was the key one for me, right? First Timothy two, uh, mm-hmm. where Paul says um, that uh, I do not uh, permit a woman to teach or have authority in the church. Uh, it's like, okay, this, it seems to be pretty, pretty, pretty clear. Um, not only that, but Paul gives uh, two uh, justifications for the, the reason why uh, women can't uh, teach or have authority in the church and teaching and having authority seem to be the two job descriptions of a, of a pastor. So she can't, she can't be the pastor. And he gives two reasons for it. And he, and he says, uh, verse 13, it was uh, first, first Timothy 2, verse 13. It was Adam who was created first and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Uh, and so it's like, yep, there you go. So it seems to be that Paul says, look, women can't, can't teach up authority in the church. And again, the various views of complementarianism will say, well, that means she can't be teacher of authority over a man. So mm-hmm. she can't be the senior pastor. So some churches say she can be on staff. She just can't be the senior pastor. Others will say uh, she can be pastor over women or, and over children. And maybe we won't use the title pastor, but we'll give her, she can teach uh, women and she can teach children. It just says she can't teach or have authority over a man. Mm-hmm. And so some say, well, is this all men or is this um, only the final man above her? Now, one thing I would note about that, and that is, it seems as though Paul is restricting women from the role of the office of pastor or, or maybe senior leader. Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean that women can't preach. Um, because let's say you're, you have a complementarian uh, uh, structure in your church, and so you have a senior leader, and he says, okay, I'm going to permit you, this uh, a woman, uh, and give you the opportunity to, to teach this morning, right? Because the same problems that you and I just acknowledged, we know women that know some of the texts better than you and I, mm-hmm. and they're qualified, and they're gifted, and whatever, um, and there's no reason to say if they can pray and prophesy that they can't have the gift of teaching too. Mm-hmm. So why not let them teach on a Sunday morning? They're, you're not violating First Timothy 2, no matter what view you have here, um, because she's still subordinate to that senior leader. Now, with that being said, by the way, I've been in churches where a woman's gone up to the pulpit to preach and people have walked out. Yeah. And I not only know that they walked out because they were walking out, because they walked out and talked to me because mm. right? I was on staff there. And like, what, what are you guys doing letting her preach? I'm out of here. So, and I'm like, I'm thinking, well, you know, that's really actually very arrogant to, mm-hmm. to think and conclude you can't learn anything from her today, right? or that you somehow, because your gender are superior to her and that she has no right to be in that. And, and think of what that does to the women themselves also, going back to the issue of justice there. All right. Now, looking at the text itself now, First uh, Timothy 2, the question at hand then becomes, what do we do with the two justifications that Paul gives for women not preaching and uh, having a teaching of authority? Because he's appealing to a creation at that. And that's like, yeah, isn't that's that right. a Jewish way of saying like, hey, you can't, like, I'm, I'm, I'm basically pulling rank right here. You don't get any more authoritative than this. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. So, and I think you're referring to the fact that Adam was made first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to say, God, God made this order, Adam first, female second. Right? The question when we, have a, when we have something like that is, is this a cultural a statement or a theologically grounded statement. I was, in other words, is this something that was cultural as to, and that's why it's being uh, uh, forbidden now. And if the culture is different, then okay, it may not apply. Or is this grounded in some theological truth that's unchanging? And what you're just noting is it certainly looks like it's something that's theologically grounded. Adam was made first and then Eve. 
the reality actually is, is actually called the law of primogeniture, uh, primogeniture being first made, firstborn. And so, and what you, and what the reality is, is that the law of firstborn was actually a cultural law, a cultural provision, because in the ancient world, um, land and land ownership was so important that it was, that it became important that the family land not get divided up. And so what you did is you gave the firstborn son the, the right to inherit the land. The rest of the children would inherit uh, possessions, but not the land. And the best way to decide, well, like well, which son's going to get it? Well, let's just make a blanket rule. Number one, it's the firstborn that, that just stops all feuding. Uh, and secondly, the firstborn son, you have to also remember this, the, the, the responsibility of inheriting the land also meant that when the parents became too old to work the land, whether it's agriculture or whether it's uh, grazing animals, et cetera, the, the firstborn son inherits the land and then he takes the proceeds of that and then helps provide for the well-being of the parents. Now, it could be that if the parents died uh, um, uh, early or the parents became ill early, that it might be that only the firstborn son's even old enough to have that response. It might be younger kids. We're not going to give the, the responsibility to the six-year-old son. So primogeniture was actually this culturally conditioned uh, principle that says, we're going to make this rule that the firstborn son's the one that gets the inheritance of the land. Now, obviously, in our culture, that doesn't necessarily happen. My home might be inherited by one of my kids, or maybe they'll sell it, or the family business may go to my son, may go to my daughter, whatever it might be. Secondly, the thing to note is that the law of primogeniture is actually not followed a whole lot of times in the scriptures. David is the youngest of all of his kids, of all the kids, Manasseh, and, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, you just go on and on and on through the list of all the Israelites. I'm like, it seems to me that you know, Jacob and not Esau, Esau is the oldest, but Jacob gets the, gets the blessing. It's, a, it's almost a common practice uh, in the biblical text that God actually doesn't give the one that's supposed to be the most honored, the privilege of the covenant or, or whatever it might be. So it, it actually is a culturally conditioned thing that may or may not apply to all, to all contexts. All right, now, the second one, however, uh, seems to be even more problematic. And it says that Eve was the one who was deceived. And again, that's just, you're referring to a historical episode. That's a fact. It happened. Women, the woman was deceived and not Adam. Uh, and again, we have a lot of questions of the biblical text because it seems to be that Adam was standing right there all along and wasn't actually speaking up. The Genesis text is, is an issue there. William Webb, I'm not sure if you've heard of his name yet mm -hmm. or not. I think we've talked about him a few times. Yep. And we're going to try to have him on one of our podcasts here because he wrote another book on um, violence and biblical violence that, uh, and we'll get um, Bill to come, on, to come on the podcast and discussing that. Wrote a phenomenal book in which he was researching and goes, okay, what is it that causes women to be deceived? Or, or why would Paul refer to deception? Now, again, the importance of deception here, and this is actually relevant for a lot of the conversation, the, the role of the pastor and of the leaders in the church is to, as first as Second Timothy says, guard the good deposit, guard the sound doctrine. You know, Paul says in chapter two of Second Timothy, um, don't lay hands on someone too quickly because they, they may not be prepared mm -hmm. to defend the faith and the, and, and the doctrines of the faith uh, against false teachings, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of reasons why people would compromise the theology of the church. And so quite the point of deception then, if a person's more prone to deception, then they are going to be less equipped to hold to the standards of the, of the doctrines of the church and the teachings of the church. So the question then is, are women themselves naturally more susceptible to being deceived than men? And so William Webb went and researched all this out there. And he's like, uh, the research is emphatic. That's not true. Women are simply not more uh, inclined to being deceived than men. There are a number of factors 
that can makes a person more inclined to being deceived. For example, a child is more likely to be deceived than an adult, right? They're more gullible and they just, they fall for things because they just don't know. As Webb went through all the research and the data out there, he says, the only one that would apply to the issue of Eve and, or to the issue of women in First Timothy is the fact of less educated. The less educated a person is, the more likely they are, they are to fall into being deceived. The more educated they are, the less likely. And so the fact that women were, less, were more likely to not be educated at Paul's day seems to be the issue that Paul's getting at. Hey, and women simply don't have the educational or the access to education. And as a result, they're more likely to be deceived. Now, let me stop there and, and note, I know a lot of churches that only ordain men or only make men pastors. And those men on staff are not trained and equipped well enough mm-hmm. yep. to, to defend the doctrines. And so they thump this verse to say why women shouldn't be in, in, in pastoral ministry. And yet they're ordaining or, or, or mm-hmm. bringing in the pastoral roles. Men that also are forbidden by this, because I think the text is, if they're not trained and equipped well enough, they should not be put into a, a, a leadership roles. So it seems then, if that's the case, that, that the two reasons that Paul gives as to why they can't teach or have authority and I think he is saying they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be pastors in this, in this passage. But the two reasons are, are actually both cultural. Uh, if women have access to education and they're educated, they can teach, they can have authority, there's no problem. Primogeniture, if your culture doesn't follow that or, or practice that, no problem. And that's why I noted earlier, there, there are cultures where we might, I might be egalitarian in theology, but I might not be in practice. As much as I want to affirm the women, I'm not sure the culture's ready for that yet. So let's bring the culture along slowly. Let's bring women into leadership roles at a slower pace so that people, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then eventually we get to a point where like, hey, I don't care what culture says. We're affirming this woman in our teaching authority and our teaching abilities and giftings, et cetera. So I, I think that's, that's important there. So yeah. I, I look at this and go, okay, so if today's world, if women have access to education, as we've already said that they do, then they can. There's no reason not to. And then this goes back to the point earlier, and that is when we are denying women these responsibilities and and opportunities, we're suppressing gifts that God has given to them. Uh, And and the whole point of 1 Corinthians uh, 11, 12, 13, and 14 uh, and spiritual gifts is that we all have these gifts that work together as one cohesive body for the edification of everyone. And when we deny women responsibilities to lead or teach when they've been gifted to do so, and we both know women that are really good teachers, we're actually denying the church body the opportunity to be blessed uh, by the use of their gifts. So I hope I explained those well enough. And again, I have uh, hopefully uh, more nuanced explanations in my blog posts. Yeah. And I, I think there's a couple different type of complementarian out there yeah. i think there, there definitely is the misogynistic mm-hmm. bigoted person who just says no like i want to assert authority and i i you know there, there's a pride there and saying a woman's never going to lead over me and that's just because they're uh misogynistic uh, i i think there's a number of people out there as well though that says i really want egalitarian to egalitarianism to be true. I'm just not convinced that this is what the scripture says. Uh, And and even when I'm hearing your, uh, your exegesis, what I'm hearing from you is you're convinced exegetically from the text itself that in first Corinthians 11, it it doesn't say what you think it says. (laughs) These words don't mean what you think. Just read the end of the passage. Exactly. Yeah. But what I'm hearing you from first Timothy two, this is the way I might summarize your, what I heard was you're saying, okay, I think it's saying this. And when you're bringing in these outside influences, you know, and, and that's part of the exegetical process is, is looking at history and culture and those things. 
And then in light of everything else you're reading, it's like, okay, I think, you know, it, it seems to be more problematic, but you don't necessarily have to arrive there. Right. Uh, that, that's kind of what I'm hearing from you in terms of as you're looking at those passages. Yeah. Yeah. I think Paul was saying to Timothy, women shouldn't be in pastoral roles, but the reasons he's saying it was because of cultural um, uh, um, influences. The church was having enough trouble already. Uh, and the illustration I've used is, you know, imagine if you're, you know, and I'm going to illustrate this with my hands and I know we're on Zoom so you can see it. Let's say that you're trying to go from here to here and I'm, I'm stretching my hands out about a foot. So you're trying to get from my left hand to my right hand, it's about a foot. All right, if you have a rubber band and that rubber band only stretches a couple inches, right? To try to stretch that rubber band from, from my left finger, uh, left hand all the way to my right hand, it's going to snap. But if you stretch it two inches and then you move the left hand over, right? Uh, uh, two inches closer. And then you stretch it again. Mm -hmm. Eventually you're going to get to the right hand. Let's, 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 I think what's happening in the early Christian church was we're making enough. We're letting women pray and prophesy in church already. And that's causing so many ripples uh, in the, in the culture and, and, and in the community that right now in this case, Timothy, let's not go there. And the reasons that Paul justifies not going there are not reasons that have application or abiding uh, um, significance through eternity, right? And so I, uh, primogeniture is not as cultural. Women being deceived is simply because they lack education there. Mm -hmm. uh, and on that note, and I, and I referenced this in one of my earlier blog posts on, on in 1 Timothy 3, in 1 um, Peter 3, you know, Peter seems to say something that's just like women have, just women should be quiet and, and in full submission. And the context there also is the fact that one of the things that was happening was in the Roman world, the, the, the emperor was the head of the, of the household of, of the empire. So the, the entire empire was a household and he's the head of that entire household. And then the local household of the local home, the man is the head of that household. And religion was uh, utmost. So you don't separate religion and politics. And so the emperor was responsible for making sure that the people followed the gods and worship the gods and that the gods were pleased. And in the local home, the husband was the one responsible for making sure that that local household honored the gods and did the, did the things necessary to, to keep stability in the culture and in society. Roman law then actually said that women can, the wife cannot have a religion of her own. She mm -hmm. must follow the husband's religion. Now she can have her own religion also, but only after she does the religion of her husband, which was the religion of the Roman empire. So in the Christian world comes along and says, repent all of you and be saved. And I don't care if your husband repents or not, but you can repent and follow Jesus. And they're now telling women, you can make this decision for yourself. You don't need to go to your husband and get his approval of it. And you can see the tension that that's causing in the household now, because you're undermining the honor of the, of the husband. And actually you're endangering the woman's health because she could literally be beaten Mm -hmm. for undermining the husband's authority, because that's the way the husband kind of maintains his honor in society. Yeah, she tried it, but I let her know who's boss. So there was actually a physical threat to the woman in this when Peter's like, yeah, women, you can come in the church and follow Jesus all you want. Now, the problem was this. You can see these women going, but I want my husband to know Jesus too. And I need to tell him about Jesus. Well, the problem with that is the woman's instructing the husband and taking a role of authority over him and this whole and this household, which culturally is just not going to work. He's the religious head of the household, and he tells her what to believe. So if you go home, woman, and try to tell your husband what to believe, you're going to cause more tension, more problems, and potentially endanger yourself. Instead, just be quiet 
and in full submission. Now, full submission doesn't mean like not being a Christian because that's a, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. But go ahead and submit to him you know, in every other sense and let him be won by your good behavior in Christ. In other words, let your witness just be your behavior, the way you're honoring him, the way you're respecting him, the way you're, the way you're kind, the way you're, you're gracious and generous. Let him see what Christ has done in you and maybe that will win him over. And then a, a few verses later, uh, uh, Paul talks about, Peter uh, says to the men, husbands, love your wives in an understanding way, uh, verse, this is 1 Peter th- uh, 3, verse 7, as with a weaker vessel, since she's a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, people go, oh, see, there you go. The Bible's you know, misogynistic and everything else because a woman is a weaker vessel. But if the context is this culturally weaker vessel, She's in a dangerous position in the context. Now, by the way, the, the translation of husbands there in verse seven is probably not the proper translation. Mm-hmm. He's probably speaking to men in general mm-hmm. and, and understand the fact that these women are in a societally weaker context and it's dangerous. And so therefore we want you to come alongside them in an understanding way, understand this, the place that they're in and sympathize with them and come alongside them. And so when you begin to realize this whole cultural context of what's going on, I think that seems to really fit with what, what, what Paul's saying, what Peter's saying. It's not putting women down. The scriptures are actually elevating women, and that's what's causing problems there. And I think Paul in 1 Timothy 2 is then saying, yeah, I think we need to be careful here. We're going to stretch the rubber band too far. And it's going to snap. Let's only go this far. But I think Paul longed for the day when we can stretch that rubber band all the way to the right hand, from the left hand to the right hand, and give women the total authority in the church. And I think you see that in so many places in the, in the new Testament. Yeah. It's, it, we've already gone like an hour and you're bringing so many things up. It's like, yeah, this would be a great conversation. Like there's so yeah, much yeah, stuff to dive into. Yeah. yeah. We, we need to have this conversation even more. Yeah. We're going to have to revisit it. But even once again, regardless of where you sit at on, on this view, you know, even looking at how women are talked about, uh, you know, so you're talking about Paul in household codes in Ephesians, right. In Ephesians five, the fact that he addresses wives, submit to your husbands. And then he, he addresses husband seconds. The fact that you're addressing yeah. the female first because <laughs> yeah. word order matters, right? And who you address first matters. And the same thing. He, he's he's addressing slaves. I, I was going to say, and sl- yeah, yeah. And he says slaves. And then he goes to masters. It's like the fact that he's front loading it with the person who is normally at the, the bottom of the social sociological totem pole, that's saying something about how we ought to view people and, and how, you know, how we ought to view uh, image bearers of God. There's something yeah. special about them. Yeah. Yeah. And children and parents, the same thing that children are being addressed. They're mm-hmm. addressing people that are marginalized culturally yes. and silenced in culture saying, nope, you're, you're, and look, and first Peter says as fellow heirs, as co women are co-heirs with men. Yeah. And the last thing I'd like to say, you know, before we, before we sign off here, because we have gone uh, farther than we longer than we wanted to is this, the importance of this is, is serious stuff, guys. This, this is not, so, and, and even some of you women that are listening, women are being seriously abused in the workplace, in society. They're being silenced in culture. They're being silenced in the church. They're being, and this has a serious impact on women, um, uh, th- their personal self-confidence and everything else, because they're told that they're subordinate. They're told that they're inferior. They're told that they can't rise up uh, and be anything. And then you're looking at the fact 
that the church was paving the way in the first century, leading the cause of women's rights in the first century. Mm-hmm. Against, and, and, and today we're behind that, the eight ball, you know, the society's leading the cause. And the church is like, no, 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 come back, come back, come back. Women should be subordinate. It's like, no, we should be going absolutely amen. In fact, we have a theological context that says women should be equal. Uh, you know, and the, the argument that I made to kind of finish this up in the blog post there was in the New Testament, and, and kind of here's the way I would take it, and that's this. In the New Jerusalem, let's just kind of go to eternity. Mm-hmm. In eternity, there's no question that we have a restoration of what God intended in Eden. Mm-hmm. And in Eden, there was clearly equality with Adam and Eve. That's, there's no, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, uh, let's make them in our, in our image. image. He made yeah. them mm-hmm. male and female. Male and female are clearly co-equal. So if the New Jerusalem is the restoration of Eden, then no problem. We know in the kingdom of God, in eternity, there's equality between male and female. But if the kingdom of God's already begun now, and there's no question it has, then Paul can come along and say, there isn't Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. It needs to be implemented now because these parts of the kingdom have already begun and so even though the fullness of the kingdom is in here, sin and corruption and death are still around, we are to be implementers of the kingdom. And in that kingdom, this is kind of the argument I would make, male and female are clearly equal in role and responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean that we're equal in athletic ability, that, that women are just as strong as men. No, there's clearly a difference between male and female, mm-hmm. just as there was a difference between Jew and Gentile. Mm-hmm but they're equal in role and and responsibility and authority in the church. I think that's what I would say. And then to to reiterate the implications of having, and again, you you can be a complementarian and and be a promoter of women's women's rights and of justice towards women. Absolutely. I I think it's harder. And I I think you have a, you're ultimately going to say, well, yeah, but it can only go so far. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. But I'm telling you guys, women are seriously oppressed in our society, in our, in our world. And I think our male headship patriarchal understandings have actually contributed to that. And I think the research confirms that. Yeah. Well, hey, this is a great episode. Lots of fun. Yeah. Uh, hopefully I, it, it, our next episode, is that going to be uh, Scott and Laura? Or yeah, are we so, talking about Scott and Laura? No, it's we're going to bring Scott and Laura Berenger, Scott's daughter and Scott uh, McKnight. And if you haven't heard of Scott McKnight, he's written like 80 books. A book that I think you should definitely read is called The, the Jesus Creed. Uh, and, and they wrote a book uh, called A Church Called Tov. Uh, and I know you've read it, Vinny, and, and I've read it. Uh, tov is a Hebrew word for good. And, and what they do in like 60% of the book is say, this is what a good church looks like. But in the other 40% of the book, they talk about what the problem with churches and church leadership and corruption and, and things like that. And, and this has been on my heart for a long time. I've been, I've been really thinking church, why we do church, why we do it, what, uh, what are we doing here? My last seven years as a, as a, as a lead pastor has had me thinking all these things as well. And I just know a lot of people that have been hurt by the church. And so we're going to bring them on. And then you and I will do another a follow-up conversation to that as well. And it's probably a conversation that we're going to have uh, over the course of, of months now, you know, why are we doing church the way we're doing? What does it look like? Uh, you work in kind of what we might call a mega church and mm-hmm. okay, what does that mean? And so it's going to be a powerful, powerful conversation. So I hope, hope you tune into that one. Awesome. Well, hey, we look forward to hanging out with you guys next time. Rob, you stay cool in Mesa and we will see everyone soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.